I hope the trash can still being up here is not some kind of subtle shot at my preaching abilities. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here this morning. Now, last Sunday, we kind of talked up this week's sermon. Joshua said that Romans 9 through 11 is arguably the most debated passage in all the book of Romans, and maybe even the entire Bible. And then Zach got up here and thanked me for letting him preach chapter 8 instead of sticking him with chapters 9 through 11. And then one congregant recently told me that throughout our whole time in Romans, he's been looking forward to this sermon. Yes, seriously, congregants say things like that to me. It was Caleb Dinsmore. You can ask him. So this text that we read today is long, it's theologically and biblically complex, and it may seem distant and removed from the everyday experience of a Christian in 2019. But it is part of God's word. And so I believe it's here for a reason, and I believe it can help those believers who have the courage and the patience to read it and seek to understand it. So with all that build up about Romans 9 through 11, let's jump in and hope that it lives up to the hype. So open up to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. And because today's scripture is three chapters long, we're only going to have a few key passages up on the screen So I'd encourage you even more than normal to open a Bible on your own and keep your finger in Romans 9 through 11. And hopefully you'll have a relatively easy time following along with what I'm saying, even though we won't read every single verse. So open those Bibles up. They can be found in the chair in front of you. Take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not take that for granted. Uh, Father, be with us as we read from your word, uh, a text that can be confusing, uh, a text that can spur on debate and disagreement. Uh, But Father, I pray that we would remember that this is your word. It's here for a reason. And I pray that we would trust and have confidence that you can use it to shape our hearts and shape our minds for our own good, for the good of our fellow believers, for the good of this world, and ultimately for your glory. So, Father, be with us as we read this word, and keep Christ in front of our eyes at all moments. As we get into some of the weeds of Romans 9 through 11, may we not forget the main thing, and that is what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We remember it every single week at communion, and Father, I pray we remember it this morning as well. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Paul ended Romans 8 with that beautiful, joyful, heartfelt hymn, so captivating that it made poor old sensitive Zach cry. We'll read it again. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love 
of Christ. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it's captivating. It's beautiful. But at the beginning of Romans 9, it's not Zach who's crying. It's Paul. And Paul is not crying tears of joy in Romans 9. Paul is in a state of overwhelming grief. So the question is, what is Paul so torn up about in Romans 9? Let's start reading in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul's grief in Romans 9 stems from the tragic fact that many, if not most, of his fellow ethnic Jews have rejected their own Messiah, Jesus Christ. These are Paul's countrymen, his kindred, his brothers and sisters. Paul loves these people and would give his own life to see them turn from their rebellion and be reconciled to God through faith In Jesus Christ. I mean, these are the people God graciously chose and dedicated himself to in the Old Testament. They were loved by God in a unique way, unlike any other nation on earth. Jesus himself comes from their family tree. And yet, tragically, most Israelites in Paul's day, not all of them, but most of them, have rejected the good news. And so one of the biggest questions of Romans 9 through 11 is this. What will happen to those Israelites who reject Jesus? Will they be condemned in the end because they have failed to recognize, worship, and obey God's Son, and thus God himself? Or will their identity as God's chosen people in the Old Testament save them, even if they don't? Have faith in Christ. Or maybe to put it another way, does the hymn of Romans 8, all those beautiful words about nothing separating us from the love of God, does that apply to unbelieving Israelites? Has their rejection of Jesus separated them from the love of God? Or as Paul puts it, has the word of God failed? That's what we see in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul's answer to that question, has the word of God failed, is no. The word of God has not failed. He argues that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because you can trace your biological ancestry back to Abraham doesn't mean you're truly one of God's people. And that also means that it's not God's fault if not every single Israelite believes in Jesus and is saved. The fact that not every single Israelite will believe in Jesus and be saved is not proof that God's word has failed. The fact that not every single Israelite will believe in Jesus and be saved does not mean that God has gone back on his promises. It doesn't mean he's changed his mind. It doesn't mean he's betrayed those people he once claimed to love. Being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't gain you access into God's justifying grace. Has the word of God failed? No. Now, this isn't a new idea. Paul takes great pains to show from the Old Testament that not every single physical descendant of Abraham is part of God's elect. We'll come back to that word elect in a few minutes. The most obvious example is the story of Jacob and Esau from the book of Genesis. Jacob and Esau were twins. They had the same mother. They had the same father. Both could clearly trace their history back to their grandfather, Abraham. They were both his descendants. But one of them was loved by God, and the other one was hated. One was chosen by God, and one was rejected. And Paul makes it clear that God's choice of Jacob over Esau came before they were born. Came before they had done either good or bad. So the choice was not based on their works. It was based on God's sovereignty. Now, there are New Testament examples as well showing this same idea that being a physical descendant of Abraham is not adequate to save you. Earlier in Romans 2, Paul argued that just because you've been circumcised in your outside flesh doesn't mean you've been circumcised in your heart. In Romans 4, Paul argued that the real descendants of Abraham are those who walk in his footsteps of faith, whether Jew or Gentile. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist tells the Pharisees and Sadducees that having Abraham as their father isn't enough for them to avoid the coming judgment. They must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in John 8, Jesus takes John the Baptist's words even further. He says to his fellow Jews that if they reject him, it proves that they aren't really descendants of Abraham at all. These are all different ways of saying what Paul said in Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you are one of God's chosen people. It doesn't mean you're one of God's elect. Now, of course, many Christians recoil at that word, elect. Maybe you already have once or twice during this sermon. People associate Romans 9 through 11 with the cold, cruel, heartless God of Calvinism. But I'd argue that if that's your first reaction to the idea of God choosing some and rejecting others, then you haven't properly understood God's sovereignty. And I'd also add that whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, Scripture has numerous stories of God choosing some people and thus rejecting others. The Bible is full of examples of how God loves all people, but not necessarily in the same way. And if you find this offensive, which maybe you do, some of Paul's audience found it offensive as well, then Paul has an answer for you in Romans 9, 14 through 24. God is not unjust to have mercy on some and harden others. He mentions the story of Abraham, or excuse me, Moses and Pharaoh, for example. And he goes on to say that ultimately, if that is in fact what God does, then who are we to accuse God of injustice to begin with? You know, there are believers in the church who have different opinions about how God's sovereignty plays out in the salvation of individual people. Prairie View is not a formally Reformed church or a formally Arminian church. If you don't know what those terms mean, I'd be happy to tell you more after the service. And we don't have to agree on every single detail of how to interpret Romans 9 through 11. We don't have to agree on how to navigate every single controversial theological and biblical debate. But regardless of where you fall on this, we do all need to remember that God doesn't owe any sinner anything. God does not owe any sinner anything. We are all fallen. We all deserve wrath. And so if God chose not to save a single sinner, he would not be unjust. Or if God chose to save just one sinner, he would already be exceedingly gracious. And that's the good news, isn't it? That God is gracious. And he's not just gracious to one sinner. He's not just gracious to a handful of sinners. He is gracious to sinners left and right. Jew and Gentile. All through faith in Christ. And Paul finds great solace and great comfort in the fact that even though most of his fellow countrymen have rejected Christ... Not all have, and not all will. He says that God has preserved a remnant of believers, and that Israel will not ultimately be lost. Now, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? But I'd encourage you not to miss the forest because you're looking at the trees. Don't get hung up on the endless debates about God's sovereignty and man's free will. A tension that you and I probably aren't going to resolve this morning. Keep the main thing the main thing. Paul is wrestling with the question of unbelieving Israel's fate. 
whether or not the word of God has failed. But before we move forward, why does that question matter so much? Has the word of God failed? Why does Paul spend so much time wrestling with that question? Has the word of God failed? Has God broken his promises? Has God changed his mind? Has he betrayed the people he once claimed to love? Well, Paul's answer to that question is a resounding no. And the reason that the answer to that question matters so much to Paul and ought to matter a great deal to us as well is because it's ultimately a question of whether or not God can be trusted. Can we trust God? Because if God broke his promises to Israel, if he changed his mind about them, if he betrayed the people he once claimed to love back in the Old Testament, then who's to say he won't do the same thing to us? Can we trust God? But Paul makes it clear that God hasn't done that to Israel. His word has not failed. And thus we can trust that he will not do that to us. His word will not fail us. Those who are justified by faith in Christ have no unpleasant surprises waiting for us on the day of judgment. Believers can trust all those moving words about God in Romans 8 really are true. We can trust that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because the word of God has not failed. And the word of God will not fail. Now, in the rest of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, Paul shows that Gentiles have only attained righteousness, have only been saved by faith in Christ. And until the unbelieving Israelites stop pursuing righteousness by the law and respond to the gospel in faith, they will only continue to stumble. And again, Paul takes no joy in this message. This breaks his heart. He prays that these people will be saved. But it won't happen as long as they trust in the law. It won't happen as long as they try to establish a righteousness of their own. As Paul says in Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In the rest of chapter 10, Paul goes on to emphasize that it is only by faith that sinners, Jew or Gentile, are saved. He says in Romans 10, starting in verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of God has not failed. People are being called by God, and people are calling to God. But of course, people cannot confess Christ with their mouth and believe in him in their hearts 
if they never hear the gospel. That, of course, means that people need to hear this good news. We need preachers. And not just people who stand on stages and wear microphones, but Christians from every walk of life willing to go out and share the good news that has come near in Jesus Christ. Again, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And so Paul challenges and encourages Christians to preach that word, even though most of his fellow Israelites have rejected it. Those who are saved are called by God. And those who are saved call on God. So does God choose you or do you choose God? Yes. And then in chapter 11, Paul re-ups the big question of chapter 9. Has God rejected his people? Has his word failed? And once again, the answer is no. Paul himself is living proof. He is a dyed-in-the-wool Israelite. And guess what? God chose him. God called him. God saved him. I'm sure Paul remembered that day like it was yesterday. And deep down, Paul knows that there are other Israelites out there, even if it's a small number, a mere remnant, who will be saved as well. In 1 Kings 19, God reminded the heartbroken and discouraged Elijah that even when it seemed like every single one of his fellow Jews had rejected him and rejected God, there was still a remnant. There were still people out there chosen by God's grace. There were still people out there who loved God. There were still people out there called by God and calling on God. And so Paul reminds himself of that same truth in his day. And that truth keeps him going. That truth gives him hope. That truth keeps him preaching. This general hardened disobedience of Israel wouldn't be total. And it wouldn't last forever. In Paul's day, Gentiles were responding to the gospel much more regularly than Jews were. But Paul is still convinced that someday even if it's at the last possible moment before Christ returns, more will come to know him. And Paul knows that in the end, all of God's chosen people, all of Abraham's children, all true Israel, all the elect, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one will slip through the cracks. So has God's word failed? Has God rejected his people? No. God did not break his promises to Israel. He did not change his mind about Israel. He did not betray Israel. And God will not break his promises to us. He will not change his mind about us. And he will not betray us. So believers in Jesus can trust God in this life. And we can trust God in the next life. We can look forward to the day of judgment, not with terror or dread, but with confidence and joy. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. And nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
But before we leave these long, winding, complex few chapters in the book of Romans, a few more practical points to consider. Number one, if you've ever found yourself in great sorrow and unceasing anguish concerning someone you know and love who doesn't believe in Jesus, you're not alone. You are not alone. But know that this is not a failure on God's part, nor is it a failure on your part. By all means, pray for that person. Preach to that person. Have hope that there are people out there who don't believe now, but will believe in the future. And maybe that person you love, who seems completely far from God right now, could be one of them. Now, can I know for sure, can you know for sure, that the ones we agonize over will be saved? No. We can't know that. We can't force that. We can't manufacture that. But we do have some reason for hope. And regardless of what happens to that person, and regardless of how difficult it might be to wrap our minds around, we believe that God is both sovereign and good, and that God can be trusted. Another more practical point is not to forget the priority of preaching. Take a moment and think back to the person who first preached the gospel to you. Maybe it was a godly parent, a faithful Sunday school teacher, A patient friend, neighbor, pastor, some weird guy who likes to hang out with high schoolers even though he's in his 40s. (laughs) Maybe even a traveling evangelist who you never saw again. Think back to that person who preached the gospel to you for the first time and thank God for them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And how gracious is the God who sent them to you. And go out and be that preacher for someone else. If there's someone you know who doesn't believe, the best thing you can do for them is simply give them the word of Christ. Give them the gospel. Because it can change the heart and mind of a sinner in a way that even your most sound wisdom, your most clever arguments, and your most winsome acts of service can't. Give them the word of Christ in hopes that by God's grace, they will call on his name and be saved. And then one more practical point is don't forget the debt that we Christians owe to Israel. In Paul's day and age, some Gentile Christians were tempted to look down on Jews, whether they believed or not. They turned their noses up at them. They took great pride in the fact that God had now chosen them, the Gentiles. The tables had turned. But in Romans 11, Paul rebukes those arrogant Gentile believers. He reminds them that ultimately their salvation could not happen apart from God's previous work through Israel. He reminds them that they should long for the day when more of Abraham's descendants are welcomed into God's family by faith in Christ. And he reminds them not to be proud. Because at the end of the day, we are all saved by God's kindness. As Paul said earlier in Romans, when our salvation is all of God's grace, which it is, there is no room for boasting. In our day and age, some misguided Christians have been tempted to look down on Jews, even to the points of anti-Semitism and hatred. Now, do we believe that a Jew who does not believe in Jesus needs to hear the gospel 
and must respond in faith to be saved? Yes. But we also recognize that we Christians owe the Jews of history a great debt. And that our salvation is a continuation and a fulfillment of the promises that God made their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we've taken up enough of your time for one morning, so I think there's no better way for me to end this sermon than the way Paul ends Romans 11, Romans 9 through 11, excuse me. He ends the passage with worship. Chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. May these long, winding, and complex chapters in the book of Romans not lead us to theological bickering, frustrated hair-pulling, or needless speculation about questions that we can't answer. Instead, let's pray that after we read it, Romans 9 through 11 would lead us to declare the same thing Paul declares after he wrote it. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. And again, thank you for your word. Every single word, every single letter, every single syllable is inspired. It's instilled with power that... My words simply can't offer, that no other words of no mere man can simply offer. But, Father, thank you for your word that we have the joy and the privilege of reading. Even when it's deep, even when it's confusing, even when we don't always see eye to eye about what what it means and how to read it and, and how to apply it. Thank you that you have given us your word, that you offer yourself to us through your word. And Father, thank you for these reminders that ultimately what matters in this life and in the next is faith in Christ. We maintain and we hold and we believe that sinners can only be justified by Christ through faith, regardless of who we are or where we come from, how we were raised, who our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors are. Father, faith in Christ is what saves us, nothing else. And Father, I pray that as we gather in this room as people who have been called by you and people who have called upon you, I pray that we would go out and preach the same gospel to others, that we would thank you for the person who preached it to us and that we would generously share this gift with all who haven't heard it. And Father, again, I pray that As we end Romans 9 through 11, as we end our Sunday morning service, later tonight as we end our day, that we would say the same thing Paul said at the end of this passage. To you be glory forever. Amen.